don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. People appreciate the individuals, yes, but they want the brand more. We were joined by Chris Stokel-Walker, author of the book YouTubers and tech journalist for the BBC, The New York Times, Wired and many more. Yes, what Chris doesn't know about YouTube and YouTube creators isn't worth knowing. And in what was a seriously insightful episode, we spoke about whether you can still shoot videos about K-pop at 40, who needs who more out of YouTube and its creators, and on a serious note, the mental health impacts of YouTube stardom. What's actually happened is TV has borrowed a lot from YouTube and YouTube has borrowed a lot in terms of production and scale and quality from TV. So they're kind of meeting in the middle now. All this and more coming up. How has YouTube fame warped ideas of celebrity and society? Well, warped is an interesting word to use. I think that it's probably certainly changed our view of celebrity and society. We have become huge oversharers. And I think because we've become oversharers, whether it's through YouTube or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or any different platform, we've kind of seen the rise of unusual celebrities. I guess it's kind of an extension of the Z-list celebrity. You know, the idea of like reality TV celebrities have become even more popular um, because they are normal. You know, we're seeing this kind of reduction in the barrier between what was a pretty rarefied world. You know, you were a celebrity and you were Tom Cruise and you kind of injected your face with, I don't know, monkey blood or something like that, when actually YouTube and and other social media platforms have kind of telescoped the gap between us and them. So yeah, everybody is much more relatable now. I think that's the next step that we've seen. So yeah, celebrities maybe don't exist that much anymore. They're, they're kind of ordinary people that are plucked out of their lives and turned into something incredible. That's interesting that you use the phrase like normal people. I mean, would you agree that YouTubers, when they first start out, they are relatable and that's what sort of makes them famous. But then once they get to a certain level, how different are they really from normal celebrities? You know, if you look at people like Zoella and now like David Dobrik, they are so popular that their sort of lifestyle naturally becomes very unrelatable. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing, Eve, is that, you know, you always use a lot of inverted commas, quotation marks around these things. So we use authentic in inverted commas. We use relatable in inverted commas. I think certainly the kind of OG YouTubers from 2005 and and the late 2000s who uh, became enormously popular, they were doing it originally simply because they had a passion for it. They were creative. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist today, but I think that as the business side of YouTube has kind of evolved and become more popular, we're seeing more and more people transparently going into YouTube and other social platforms to kind of become celebrities. So yeah, it's an interesting one. They are more normal, they are more relatable. And I think that you know what is different is that they're no different to traditional celebrities in that, you know, celebrities generally don't come out of the womb being celebrities. You know, they have to go through something. They have to become a movie star or a musician. 
But generally in the past, you haven't seen that transition happen in front of you. And that's kind of like the weird uh, Truman Show-esque, like always online thing that's happening where we're actually seeing the transition, which is why I kind of brought in that analogy to you know, reality TV stars, like a, a Jade Goody or someone was an ordinary person literally plucked out of nowhere and you saw her become a celebrity in front of your eyes. You do that mm. with YouTube even more now. Yeah, no, I think that's a really apt comparison. Would you say that it is possible to become a YouTube celebrity now, even though so many people are striving for it, probably more than ever? But YouTube is quite hard to grow on typically. But you'd think that because, I don't know, once they reach a certain level of celebrity, people are still looking for that relatable girl boy next door person to follow. So there should be quite a high turnover, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it's enormously difficult. And, and if the horse hasn't yet bolted, I think it probably is just about to because people see it as a career path. I mean, I, I've been covering this space for a long time and I, I did a story in, in February 2018 uh, for Bloomberg, which analysed how uh, much money people make on YouTube. And it was done by a German academic. He did a, a research paper basically analysing millions of YouTube channels and how the views were distributed. Um, and it turned out that if you kind of put a basic CPM, you know, YouTube AdSense uh, rate on it at the time, something like 96.5% of people on YouTube did not make enough money from AdSense revenue alone to break the US poverty line. So like, you know, this is, mm. you know, it, it, the chances of wow. success are just tiny because of the sheer scale. And it, it requires, I guess, you know, and this is where you know all better than I do, you know, the the kind of unquantifiable X factor that makes someone likely to succeed beyond just simply luck. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it definitely does reveal the absolute scale of it, um, like the amount of content on there. I think sort of what's interesting and what, what we're going to cover on this episode is whether or not all the people aiming to be YouTube celebrities should be doing that, or maybe there's repercussions they need to consider. So when we first spoke, we talked about YouTubers whose fans and followers were sort of starting to cross boundaries and the relationship was becoming quite problematic. Would you say that YouTubers and influencers by extension, because I think that's something a lot of brands listening will be interested in hearing, do you think these influencers are wrong to sort of play up to that uh, friendly next door neighbour type and call people their friends when in reality they're not? I think you have to play the game. I think you know the key thing that separates YouTubers, content creators, influencers, social media celebrities of any kind from traditional celebrities is the idea of the parasocial relationship. Now, you all probably know that. Maybe marketers, some of them will, some of them won't, but it's essentially the idea that you are a friend to the person in front of the camera. And the way you do that is by fostering a sense of intimacy and, in inverted commas, authenticity. So, mm. Well, that, that's what they're told works, and it, and it does. And it does yeah. work, it does, because you, know, you get, you know, and we've all been to places like VidCon, We've all been to meet and greets and we've seen quite how obsessive some of these fans can be, it, for good or bad. But, you know, it, it does come with a price. You know, we've seen celebrity stalkers throughout history, but you're kind of mainlining that addiction with YouTube and, and the idea of like letting people into your bedroom, letting people into your life. So I wrote a book um, which came out last May about how YouTube has kind of changed society and TV, what's celebrity means and entertainment. 
And, you know, I brought out a few examples, like we know in the UK, Alfie Days and Zoella obviously are constantly battling this issue of overzealous teenage fans who will try and get through their door over their fences. And in Brighton, we have uh, when the Sidemen used to live in uh, the Stratford Halo, which was a very big tower block in Stratford. Uh, Interestingly, the reason why so many YouTubers went and lived in the Halo was that the broadband connection there was like the fastest in the country because it was for the 2012 Olympics, the the media center. But, you know, I I talked to residents at the Halo who were non-YouTubers and they said they were always encountering kids who were asking, you know, where this person lived on which floor. And then you have... It's just very creepy. Yeah, it's it's enormously creepy. And, and, you know, you have... Uh, Logan Paul had an intruder last year, and Christina Grimmie is obviously the one that many people may know about. Um, you know, she got shot by an obsessive uh, fan and killed at a, at a meet and greet a few years ago. So, that yeah. was awful. so these, you know, there is this trade-off. You are trading on your ability to make people seem like they're your friends, but actually, you're not. It's a business transaction, and. Yeah, there are issues with that because you are encouraging people to feel more entitled to a bit of you than they actually do. But then, and this is something that I got into a little bit in the book at the end, the the broader scale impacts that I wonder about are what happens when you have a generation of kids now who have grown up thinking a YouTuber, a creator is their best friend, and then actually they begin to clock on to the fact that that authenticity, that intimacy is manufactured solely to get them to buy products. And then does that have an impact on their real life relationships with their real life friends? Do they suddenly think, well, is there an underlying business transaction here? But that's me at my most pessimistic. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, Chris, <laughs> yeah, that is a serious kind of mental health undertone there, isn't there? I mean, I know they say that you shouldn't meet your heroes, but this seems like the next kind yeah. of generation of that, really, if that were to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is the thing. And, you know, <clears throat> part of the issue that I have as a journalist and as, as someone who wrote the book is, Academia works much slower than journalism. Book publishing is actually quite slow, but it's still quicker than academia. So, you know, I'm a journalist who's looking to document this stuff and to try and figure out what its impact is. And to do that, I have to speak to experts. And, you know, you speak to academics and, you know, I I know pretty much every academic working in this field at the minute um, because, there aren't that many of them in the UK and there aren't that many of them in the US really or elsewhere, but they are in the early stages of gathering their data. So even they don't really know, you know, there, there are first, second, third year PhD students whose work will be incredible once it's published and will begin to help us understand. But all of this is still relatively new. So we don't really know what the impact is. I find it very interesting that there is obviously like impact enough that it warrants people doing like dedicated research on it. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, this is a huge industry, you know, 2 billion monthly active users every single month you know bear in mind half of the world does not have an internet connection and suddenly you're looking at the majority of the world particularly when you also add into the fact that you know a billion and a half people live in china which technically doesn't have access to youtube so you know this thing is society and and you know, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are clued in enough, but they may work with other people who aren't. And I think it's really our job to bang the drum and to point out just how important and vital and mainstream this industry is. Chris, yeah, as the, no, as the um, you know, in your years of covering YouTube, as a result of all of this, have you seen 
the content change at all? Or is it still the same? I don't know. Is it less invasive? Are there less vlogs that touch on every aspect of your life? Or are we still sort of, you know, despite everything that's gone on, are we still kind of looking at the same kind of content? No, people still trade their souls. I mean, God, that's the, the main commodity on YouTube, isn't it? But the type of content has changed and certainly uh, the production values and the barrier to entry has uh, got much higher. You know, you look back, you know, I'm 30, just going on 31 now. So I kind of have grown up with YouTube. It was very much a part of my my formative experience. And those early videos on YouTube were not very good, you know, objectively. They were pretty dull. They were creative, but they were weird. They were filmed really shoddily. You know, the, the lighting was awful. The audio was really bad. The conceits of the whole thing weren't very good. Now you look at like, you know, even sort of a, a relatively uh, small creator who is publishing stuff, you know, an entry level creator is doing incredible stuff. And so that's changed an awful lot. And, and we're seeing the industrialization of production on YouTube. So, you know, T-Series being the world's biggest YouTube channel in terms of subscribers, you know, they put out basically a video every single day, if not more. They have a staff of people that they hire out. And I know a lot of creators have staffs themselves to handle their paperwork and stuff, but y you can't compete now. You know, BuzzFeed is a major part of YouTube. Bon Appetit, you know, these people have entire departments devoted to producing stuff for YouTube. So on that sense, it's changed an awful lot. I mean, on something we'll touch on uh, a bit later in this podcast, but I want to quickly bring up now is the duty of care YouTube has to its uh, creators and to audiences and fans, because it's an interesting one. I feel like with a lot of social media tools that they were kind of put out there with no regard for how people would use them. And now, you know, society obviously has its own way of saying, oh, this is going to be for this exactly. And it's interesting to see i wonder if you can touch some light on you know if they do have a duty of care or you know these responsibilities lie with i don't know talent managers and i suppose the influencers themselves yeah tech bro mentality theo well well summarize the tech bro mentality there of build it and then figure out the issues later i have been quite an outspoken critic of youtube um for many many things in terms of uh whether they have a duty of care i mean you know, they can't possibly have a duty of care for every single person that uploads stuff. You know, they are ultimately a platform that passes through data. However, you know, they do need to be aware that they are providing a massive megaphone to some of the most popular people. And so you know, you see very little creator support in reality. You know, I, I wrote about burnout for uh, The Observer maybe 18 months ago or two years ago now. And I asked YouTube at the time, I also asked some of the, the creators that I interviewed, I said, what support is there for creators who are suffering from mental health problems from YouTube? And they said, well, there isn't any. And there, there wasn't really. I think that's mad. When we talk about YouTube's duty of care, people seem to really default to the audiences, which is obviously important, but it must be very hard for them to sort of look out for very nuanced examples, like the fact that like creators might be unknowingly inviting people to trespass on their property by calling them friends, like something as small as that. But I guess it's it kind of reminds me of the recent steps that ITV have had to take following Love Island, uh, several suicides on that show, and they sort of realise because they were plucking people out of obscurity and making them famous, that that was going to come with a certain level of stress and um, like the toll that fame takes on you. So I think it's like interesting that YouTube doesn't feel a need to do that. 
but maybe they view it as differently because people are sort of opting into that lifestyle themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, the issue, Eve, that they have is if you accept liability for one thing, then you have to accept liability for an awful lot. So my book got mentioned in a parliamentary hearing back in May 2019. Um, Damien Collins, who at the time was the, the chair of the the Commons Digital Media Culture and Sport Committee had YouTube executives up in front of him uh, in terms of talking about the online harms white paper that the UK has published recently. And, you know, he was literally citing bits from my book and saying, well... It's very exciting. Yeah, well, it was, it was cool. It was very <laughs> nice. I, I, was, I appreciated it. It was... Don't think it impacted book sales that much, but, you know, it was, it was nice anyway. <laughs> um, and, you know, he was putting these questions to... YouTube executives to a guy called Marco Pantini, who is also a lawyer, and kind of saying, well, do you accept responsibility for the content on your platform and the impact that it has on people? And uh, YouTube's reaction, you know, uh, because we know now over the last, you know, three years since the adpocalypse, uh, that their, their key watchword is responsibility. You, you, you can kind of... Mm guess the number of words that you'll get into a YouTube press release before you encounter the word responsibility because they're so keen to triumph it. But they have responsibility up to a certain extent, they say. So they absolutely do not accept legal liability for anything. They will say they are responsible and that they will look to try and improve things. But if you, as this MP was trying to say, do you have any legal responsibility? And they are like, absolutely not. This is an optional thing that people can use the issues that come from it are their issues alone yeah so i mean if responsibility like full responsibility and this duty of care from youtube on a big scale is quite unrealistic i guess where my mind is going back to the use of youtubers and sort of now instagram celebrities as influencers in campaigns as partnering with an influencer as a brand you are helping to make that influencer's career and like more successful and therefore their like audience a bit bigger so I guess is there something that brands can do along the vein of having a duty of care uh, in terms of the advice that we're giving them because right now like the industry is in some areas really clued up and some areas not so clued up at all on what they should be doing and we're sort of only getting to grips with a lot of brands are only now getting to grips with sort of how they should be using them in a creative process kind of way but not anything else in terms of you know consequences and and looking after them and making sure they're okay like we had a we had a campaign recently uh with our gaming brand game bite worked with like a video twitch streamer and she got loads of hate and they had to respond by doing like an anti-hate video but i guess it was an example of sort of how quickly things can turn sour in the comments yeah i mean look nobody is dragging these people kicking and screaming to advertise products uh so i mean you know the liability goes up to a certain point, but I think you know you're right in that there are good agencies and there are bad agencies out there, and, and certainly you know some of the bad agencies don't even give proper advice on how to disclose ads, and that's harming the entire industry. So, um, yeah, you know, I think it is beholden on those people who are working with creators, working with influencers, to kind of try and guide them as much as possible, whether that is, you know, from, are you really sure that you want to work with us? Because, you know, it may be that you've built your brand on one thing and we've misunderstood it. And actually you run the risk of really annoying a very dedicated audience and losing them to, you know, here is what you can maybe expect if you do, if it's a contentious brand, for instance, 
you know, they will get blowback from that. So, you know, it, it's, it's difficult, right? Because ultimately these people have a choice to do this, but also this is so new and the ground is so uncharted that we don't yet know fully the consequences. And we've seen early warning signs. You look at Etika, um, yeah, being an example, that was a person who was clearly mentally unwell and yet still felt the need to continue posting videos on Twitch and on YouTube and then disappears and, and very sadly kills himself. And you know, he had a lot of issues here that needed some help. So there needs to be some support. And you know, within the community, there are like ad hoc things. We've had, I think now, three attempts at a YouTube union of some sort or a creators union, an internet creators guild, um, to try and offer that support. But a lot of this stuff is very informal kind of friends tapping each other on the shoulder. Yeah, it's very sort of in the community, isn't it? I mean, I personally would like to see brands who work with them stepping up and telling them not just how to make an ad for them, but, you know, how to make good content, how to not break the law with the ASA, how to safeguard yourself against trolling, you know, the works as, as much as possible. Yeah. And even just, you know, good life decisions, you know, I, I did a Radio 4 documentary um, earlier this year in, in February where uh, I basically told the story of, of YouTube, the history of it. And uh, one of the people I spoke to was a creator called Demi Donnelly, who is based up in Newcastle, where I am. And you know, she said that when she got her first kind of check through in the post, she didn't actually know what to do with it. She had to ask her gran, like, do I have to declare tax on this? How do I fill out a tax return form? How do I... You know, do I hire an accountant? What happens? Like we, you know, you're throwing people in at the deep end here and expecting them to swim when actually they need just like basic knowledge. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. I mean, Theo, what do you think? I know you sometimes have some interesting opinions about influencer culture. Um, I'm, I'm just just this moment thinking it very much reminds me of professional football in a way. It's been a while since I've sort of thrown in a football analogy, but this kind of idea of I think it's strange for all of us to see maximum amounts of wealth at such a young age naivety all of these things that stew in the pot together and that can sort of uh, produce this impact on society one of the things i want to know about is the algorithms is real life if you know what i mean and how not just youtube culture but this uh, demand for content that's quite outrageous i suppose how that's kind of seeped into real life we very much live in a time of self-expression i wonder what that looks like now if people had to become a bit more outrageous of people almost becoming their youtube personas in real life yeah i mean i mean they they live up to the stereotype don't they it's click clickbait becomes a state of mind yeah well i mean i you know i've written stories about this yeah i wrote a story for uh, the economist 1843 magazine about how people pursuing the perfect instagram selfie ended up walking off cliffs and in front of trains because they just weren't paying attention yeah. Yeah, like, I think that's ridiculous. But it happens because people are so focused on this. Or you have the example on YouTube of Pedro Ruiz um, the third, who uh, was a guy who, and I, I go into a lot of detail about this in the book, but he was a guy who wanted to become famous on YouTube and he decided that the way he would do it was a prank channel and he would call himself damn it boy that would be his his youtube username because that was what he hoped people would say to him when they watched one of his videos like "Ooh, damn it boy i can't believe you did that and you know the first video that he wanted to put on his channel was um his girlfriend shooting him and him holding uh, a book in front of it and hoping that it would stop a nine millimeter bullet and of course it didn't oh my god that's horrendous so you can like advise it 
influencers and creators against making certain mistakes, I guess, in terms of, you know, going back to calling them friends. But if their goal in life is to be famous, they'd be so scared of, of losing that. And I mean, there's an argument by some of the more extreme fans, I think, that they have a right to their life because they're the ones making them famous day after day. They're the ones giving them views and paying their bills. Can a YouTuber actually claim privacy and claim to have this sort of life of their own if they're choosing to share that life online, if they're making that their thing? Because if they don't, you know, they might just be cancelled. Well, it, it depends on whether or not you are, and this comes into the bigger question around authenticity, it depends on whether or not you consider yourself to be uh, portraying a character on YouTube or whether you consider yourself to actually be who you are on YouTube. I mean, it's it's... To draw a, an old world analogy, a traditional media analogy that people may understand, it's it's the Lorraine Kelly defense, where Lorraine Kelly says that um, you know she can allegedly avoid tax because uh, you know she is playing a character on TV, the lovable TV breakfast host. Um, you know, if you are a creator, a YouTuber, or an influencer who is presenting themselves and is letting people into their homes and is basically wholly dependent on the support, the financial support of your fans in order to maintain your lifestyle. I think you do owe something, but I don't think that you lose all right to privacy. You know, it's, we don't expect to be able to, I don't know, you don't, you don't expect to be able to walk into Kim Kardashian's house, even though she lets cameras in for her structured reality TV shows. So, you know, just because this is new, it doesn't mean that it is any different or that the people in it should be treated any differently or any less humanely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I do think personally that they have absolutely a right to privacy. If it's their job, which I think it is, they should be able to switch it on and switch it off, you know, have their version of like working hours, let's say. Do you think, Chris, uh, I've got a question for you, YouTubers and uh, Instagram stars and, and whatever, do you think they're on the same level as, as celebrities we're used to now or as YouTuber or creator? Is it still a bit of a kind of add-on in terms of we sometimes see them in TV shows, you know, you'll have sort of five celebrities and then you'll have like a YouTuber that's there for the, I guess you could say more youthful audience. What do you think celebrities themselves is their opinion of um, YouTubers? Well, I mean, it depends on how forward-thinking that celebrity is. I mean, uh, in terms of whether YouTubers and influencers and creators are on the same level as celebrities, yeah. Like, you only need to look at the absolute numbers. You know, how many millions of people watch a primetime TV show on BBC One versus how many millions of people watch KSI on YouTube. <laughs> there's, there's no competition. Um, in, in terms of uh, whether the celebrities, the mainstream traditional celebrities themselves, uh, recognise that, I think that they are starting to because you know, I can't open up YouTube or TikTok or Instagram without being confronted by The Rock's bulging abs and uh, biceps at the minute. And you know, he's the biggest movie star in the world, but he recognizes that in order to maintain his position as someone who is relevant to people of all ages, as a celebrity that is kind of a cultural touchstone, he knows that he needs to be on social media platforms. Same thing with Will Smith. Will Smith is a YouTuber now. He is front and center of TikTok. He is front and center of YouTube Rewind. The reason why he's doing that is because he is desperately trying to cling on to relevancy. <laughs> and these things are 
you know, forward thinking celebrities absolutely think that the the ones that are like, well, you know, social media is a passing phase and I don't need to care about it are the ones that are going to go the way of the dinosaurs. Mm, mm. You know, I think it's interesting that it happens the other way around though, because now internet stars are turning to TV for the same reason to be relevant. They sort of both want to intrude on the different worlds and sort of have a more well-rounded picture of fame, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's old white guys in suits panicking about this new crazy thing called the internet, Eve. Uh, I mean, yeah, why does Lad Baby have a BBC TV show? Well, it's because you know, they want to try and bolster his rate, the ratings on the, the program, and they think that shoving a YouTuber or an influencer into a traditional TV format is the way to do it. And almost without fail, it doesn't work. Um you know, Lily Singh's late night TV show, you know, she got that job because she has an enormous commanding audience on social media. And yet the TV show itself has absolutely failed because they are trying to put someone who has a very particular skill set, which is talking engagingly directly into the camera, into a TV studio with lights and microphones and audiences, and it doesn't work. You know, we've seen this for years though, and this is not changing. People are not recognising that there is a difference between the two. Joe Sugg hosting uh, the New Year's Eve celebrations looking really awkward. Um, but like he's been on Celebrity Bake Off, he's been on the West End. You could say he's done a pretty good job of splitting off from YouTube and sort of getting into other areas of media. Yeah, no, he, and he has, and he, he's, he's learning. But what I'm saying is that the you know, it is an enormously different skill set from the fundamental basics of there is a difference between a YouTuber's ring light set and a, you know, 3000 watt studio set up a, a broadcasting house, or there is a difference between kind of extemporizing a monologue for YouTube directly to the camera versus either reading a teleprompter and getting, you know, an IFB feed in your ear of the director in the gallery saying, look to this camera, look to that camera. And I think that there is a misunderstanding. I think that um, TV executives kind of both simultaneously overplay the skill set of create digital creators and also underplay them. So they they overplay them in that they see the same basic thing, which is standing there and talking into a camera lens. And they think that that's a transferable skill regardless of the medium when it's not. What they don't appreciate is, so that's them overplaying uh, the quality. You know, presenting TV is very difficult. Um, you know, I've never done it, but I've been in enough TV studios being interviewed to know how challenging it is. So that's them overplaying the skill and thinking that one person talking into a camera is the same as any other person. But then they underplay the skill because the main thing that is so powerful about digital creators is their ability to create empathy, their ability to connect with an audience in a very short period of time and to be so relatable. And that's not something that Michael McIntyre can do. Um, and you know, yet they kind of try and shoehorn these people into those sorts of situations and make them just general light entertainers when they're not. They're highly specialised, very skilled people. Do you think it actually is always people shoehorning them in or a lot of them are seeking out those opportunities themselves? So like David Dobrik went on Jimmy Fallon late night and says he always wanted to be a late night host, but... He's putting himself out there because that's the part of the world that he wants to be in. 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's always this kind of, um, how do I describe it? There's this idea that because you are a YouTube star, you are somehow a second-class citizen. You know, you know, in reality, you know, we've been doing it through this conversation for the past half hour. We've kind of been saying um, that there are celebrities and then there are online or digital celebrities, um, you know, as if they are slightly different or they are inferior when actually they're exactly the same. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I speak to an awful lot of creators who um, kind of say, well, yeah, I would love to do a TV show because a TV show is the sort of thing that would get me mainstream acceptance amongst the people who don't understand the power of this thing. So they absolutely want to do that. But you know, my argument is, well, you have a bigger audience anyway. I mean, the perfect example is um, when I first interviewed KSI. Actually, no, sorry, the second time that I interviewed KSI, it was a long feature story for Esquire. And uh, at the time, KSI... KSI's manager uh, was was being KSI's manager. He, he's he's a lovely person actually, but uh, he he can be a tough nut to crack when you don't know him. Uh, and yeah, you know, he was very upfront and honest. He said when I approached uh, him about interviewing KSI for uh, Esquire, he said, "Well, why would JJ do this? Like, you know, he has more fans basically on his little finger than you you have in your magazine circulation. So you know, why would he do this? And yeah, you know, there's." For all that, there are people who want the mainstream acceptance. There are other people who kind of recognize the power of digital celebrity and realize that this is part of a broader shift in media towards what we would call new media, if you're an old-fashioned person. But I find that very interesting, actually, Chris, because this sort of throws yeah, up a kind you. of debate that we've touched on a, a few times here, but almost, are there different sides to this? Does half the side of YouTube feel that total validation comes with that sort of mainstream awareness and half of them think, well, like you said, this is new media and new media is niche? Because I suppose we all know of a TV where it's sort of prime time or it's kind of weird sort of esoteric kind of channel that nobody watches if you know what I mean yeah well the perfect example that um someone once told me and I always use it because it's a really great example is almost everybody knows who Ollie Mers is because he turns up on Loose Women you know like <laughs> your gran knows who Ollie Mers is because at one point he's been interviewed by Nadia Sawala or whoever it is that's on Loose Women until relatively recently and we're really talking the last six months digital creators have not had that opportunity Opportunity. They've not had the kind of passive intake amongst an audience of people kind of just flicking through a TV screen and coming across them and saying, oh, well, this person must be a celebrity. You've had to proactively seek them out. So, I mean, that's, you know, I think that's where digital creators, influencers, uh, YouTubers and anybody else is kind of still feeling a bit like a second-class citizen, is that YouTube is very pervasive, but it's only very pervasive in certain areas amongst a certain demographic of people. You know, if you get over the age of 30, nobody really watches influencers. You know, they, they watch YouTube for how do I put up a shelf or how do I fix my washing machine or what has my kid done to their hair and how do I fix it? They use it as like a search engine, as a utilitarian. I find it... Younger people use it as light tame. I was just going to say, I find it interesting. Um, you sort of referenced that to like everyone knowing who Ollie Mers is. But if YouTubers have like bigger audiences, it's more that their audiences are technically bigger than other media outlets. But that's sort of quantifying everyone knowing who you are, I think is very like celebrity that people are aspiring to be. So you could be really well known among one like portion of YouTube, but even like some young people don't know who one influencer is. 
Like it's very hard for them to get that level of recognition. Yeah, and I for the book, I've spent an inordinately large amount of money asking YouGov to survey 2,000 UK adults who are representative of the population. And it was absolutely astounding. Um, when I got the results, the person who conducted the poll said that they were a pleasingly divisive set of results based on age. So people aged 18 to 24, and to a certain extent, people aged 25 to 34 knew who YouTubers were. You know, people like Drake Paul, Zoella, KSI. I asked people, you know, did they recognize these people? And they said yes. And they often said, I know them very well. They felt like they knew them personally. As soon as you get over the age of 35, that drops off to a cliff, as in like literally almost nobody no knows. Yeah. And so that's, mm. I think, what's really interesting about it is this demographic shift. But you know, I have friends at the BBC. The BBC are looking desperately for what they call replenishers because their um, their average audience is in their sixties, and and the, the word replenishers is management speak for people who will replace the people who are about to die in consuming our content. So <laughs> it, the demographics are changing, and those young people will suddenly become old people. And maybe we will see kind of digital creators more popular. Well, I'm glad you've um, touched on age here, Chris, because this is a question that's been burning in the back of my mind, which is how does all of this age, if you know what I mean? I don't know, maybe it's a bit short-minded of me to say with, with film stars, for instance, you know, uh, you might get an actor or an actress who was good as they were at 20, as they will be at 60 and, and so on and so forth. How, how does the YouTube community age with regards to content, with regards to culture, with regards to viewership? That's a good question. Yeah, this is, well, again, this is covered in my book. This is what I call the Julian Nunes problem. So Julian Nunes was kind of an early YouTuber who produced kind of uh, pop song videos and then she burned out. I remember out. her. She's the ukulele lady. Yes, yeah, so there was Julian Nunes. <laughs> who, um, there was also Lacey Green, who uh, was an early sex educator um, on YouTube. So she put out loads of sex positive, very kind of left leaning videos. She then became um, romantically involved with a guy called Chris Reagan, who was very, very alt right. And uh, basically, her entire audience disowned what? her. Scandal. And, well, yeah, but this, but this is the thing, right? And 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 this is the big question about age, which is if you are a creator now who is joining the platform because you absolutely love K-pop. You know, K-pop is your favorite thing in the world, and and you build your brand around being the main K-pop channel that anybody goes to because you're 13 and you love it. Like, you know, that's fantastic. The person that you are at the age of 13 is not the person you are at the age of 18. It's not the person you are at the age of 25 or 30. What happens when you dislike K-pop and you start really liking, I don't know, prog rock or something stupid like that? And and you know, this is the question that I'm I'm asking a lot of creators and have been asking for a few years and asked, I answered some of those questions through them in the book, which is, um, the challenge of almost feeling like you're in a golden cage and you're hostage to your audience because your audience expects you to be one person and you are no longer that person. You know, you, you kind of have moved on from whatever it is that made you popular. Do you continue, and this is where we get into the question again of authenticity in inverted commas, do you continue to pretend that you are interested in this thing because it is bringing you in money? Or do you front up to your audience and say, well, actually, don't like this anymore. I've moved on. I'm different. I'm going to change my channel to this. If you want to stay, great. If you don't, I kind of understand it. And 
yeah, it's a very difficult decision to turn down a lot of money. I've seen a few creators um, do that, Louise Pentland being one of them. Her audience was never as big as Zoella's, but both of them starting off as very family-friendly channels, she sort of realised, hang on, I've got two kids, I can't really make this stuff anymore and it be like true to me. So just started being however she wanted and I don't know how much of a portion she kept of her audience, but it's enough to keep her sort of still in the game. Uh, whereas I don't think Zoella's content has changed much. But isn't that like why some of them are diversifying to do other things like, you know, take up theatre, write a book, etc. Because they naturally will have other interests that they want to explore and I guess new audiences that they can reach via those means. Yeah, but I, I think, yeah, that is the reason why people are moving off YouTube in one way is that they simply get bored of being in the hamster wheel. Uh, the other reason is that, you know, as we are seeing in the middle of the coronavirus and as we saw at the apocalypse is that ad rates can just disappear overnight and you're completely screwed. But yeah, I mean, Louise Pentland's a good example. Charlie McDonnell is another good one. Um, he uploaded an amazing video, uh, which was basically him performing a poem he wrote about you know, the mask that he had put on uh, his face at the age of 16 as his internet persona wasn't really even him then, but it certainly isn't him at the age of 30-odd. Uh, so he's stepped away entirely, and he's now you know writing shows for Quibi, which is a bizarre pivot, I think. Mm, you sort of have to trust, I guess, if if it's like anything else, I think these creators have to trust that some part of the audience, you know, they're there for the person and not just what the person is talking about and, and the interest. And like you have to be willing to adapt and sort of alter your strategy a little bit if you want to be there at the end. Yeah, but I mean, it, that's the issue though, is it almost requires you to look in a detached way at your own self-worth. And you know, we are all incredibly self-aware and we're all very self-conscious and very worried about what people think about us. Now imagine that's not just your 10 friends around you, you know, trying out a new haircut or whatever. Imagine that's 30 million people. <laughs> yeah. God, it couldn't be me. I think it really takes a certain type of person to do well on YouTube. And maybe that's the mistake of like the masses. And that's the danger in everyone's sort of new dream job aspiration is the fact that normal fame, like being a singer or an actor, not everyone's cut out for the business. Yeah. And this is, you know, I, I like to think that though I am realistic about my coverage of YouTube, I like to think that the people that I talk to often within the industry and the people who are creators uh, respect and like my reporting because I am upfront and honest. So, you know, if someone does something wrong or if the industry is going in a bad way, I will point it out. But also, you know, I am the first person who is going on TV and radio to say, hang on, you all think that these people are celebrities. You all think that all they do is they turn up one morning in front of the camera, switch it on and start talking. Actually, it's better if we think of these people not as celebrities, but if we think of them as entrepreneurs, because they are running businesses and you know, they are doing tax forms and they are brokering brand deals and they are signing contracts and they are making merchandise and they are building out a five-year plan. They're doing all of this stuff and they're often doing it without any of the support that you would expect from a traditional business. So yeah, the people who think that this is a really easy job, I, uh, you know, I'd like them to try even three hours as a creator. Mm. But this is a good question for yourself, actually, as well, Chris, in terms of, you know, do you think this is something that you will be covering for the foreseeable? I use that sort of professional football analogy again, where you get to the age of, I don't know, 32, 
and the choices there for you, they really, really limit, don't they? It's, it's sort of a punditry or management and that's probably it. It sounds bizarre to say, but if you think there is a shelf life to everything we're discussing from YouTubers to YouTube to, to so on and so forth. No, I'm all in, Theo. I'm, I'm here. I'm here until I die. I'm... I mean, I, you know, I still wake up and watch YouTube. The story that I tell about why I got involved in covering internet culture and particularly focusing on YouTube is that I needed a reason to justify all the time I spent lying in bed watching YouTube. I like that. That's why I work in social media. Exactly. And, and you know, this thing isn't going away. Like, you know, this is replacing TV. This is bigger than TV. This is huge. So it's not going away. There are lots of really interesting stories still to be told. And also I'm expanding. You know, TikTok is incredibly interesting. I'm doing loads of stories on TikTok. I'm trying to do a book on TikTok. You know, there will be even more new platforms coming around. And so, yeah, no, I'm certainly not sick of it yet. Well, this is an interesting one with TikTok, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that because you're right. Now we are at the the start of, or maybe, you know, a bit on from the start of this new massive emerging kind of culture shift. Do you see similarities in terms of the early days of YouTube? Do you see major differences? They're going to be quite different. Well, TikTok's interesting because TikTok, and, you know, I speak to people at TikTok quite a lot. um, and, And that's partly because because of what I'm going to say next, which is that they have looked very carefully at all the mistakes that YouTube have made over the last 15 years, and they are determined never to repeat. Mm. So whether that is moving relatively slowly in terms of building out monetization options, you know, for a platform with as many users, you would think that they would have made the cash grab very quickly to try and help creators uh, monetize in actual fact what they did was they they kind of took it very very slowly you know for months and months journalists have been saying well when are you going to roll out your ad product when are you going to do this and they said well we're going to talk to creators and figure out what they want we're going to talk to brands and figure out what they want even down to youtube pr is very very closed off and it's starting to change over the last six months um they're being more open and welcoming but i'm still waiting for the interview with susan wojcicki i'm still waiting for the interview with ben mccone wilson uh tiktok i can call up their press office and i can speak to their uk md within a day because they know that it is important for them to kind of not repeat the same mistakes that youtube have um so you know, I, I think that TikTok still has plenty of issues and plenty of problems that they're going to come across. But I think that you know, they're very much looking and learning at what YouTube did and figuring out, well, you know, how do we head off these problems? Um, and partly that's because they've seen all of the stuff that was thrown at YouTube. You know, they've had an awful five, ten years. I was going to say it's, it's very, very interesting. Probably quite in a charmed position to use YouTube as a sort of blueprint for what a social media platform should be. Now, I, w- I want to quiz you slightly on my kind of take on YouTube from, from covering it in the social media stories that we do. And, you know, not to call anybody out there, but you get a feeling that they are very much more kind of their ear is to the needs of the advertiser. I get a sense sometimes covering some stories that creators, you need us more than we need you. You know, we, we will still make advertising money with or without you. And I, I find that to be... I mean, I could be completely wrong. I could, I could be absolutely wrong, but I find it to be an irony in a way because they are the box office, let's be honest. You know, for every how-to video, great, but it is the reason that people like us keep going back to YouTube to watch these people, surely. Yeah, funny you say that, uh, Theo. Funny that you kind of 
believe that maybe YouTube are prioritizing their advertisers and maybe aren't doing right by their creators. I think that's not an unusual thought. I mean, you only need to look at. Didn't um, didn't Susan? I never. I can never pronounce her last name. Susan w- Wojcicki. Wojcicki. I always say Wahiki. Uh, Susan Wojcicki. Didn't she actually make a statement that literally said what Theo's just said? So uh, yes, we are prioritizing the needs of advertisers. It'll be in a certain context, but I'm sure I read that. Well, it's, this is this is literally, I've got my book open, and this is uh, the end of chapter 25. In an October 27 interview with Recode's Kara Swisher, YouTube's chief executive, Susan Wojcicki, described the platform as an ecosystem between advertisers and creators and users. The order is deliberate. To YouTube, the advertisers come first, then the creators producing the video, then the people watching it. Unwittingly, Wojcicki showed where the real power lies in every business, with the people who pay the bills. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. And while like we obviously, we're in advertising on social media, we know the importance of that. But I think anyone who wants to make good work and wants to make good work for a long time knows that it has to start with the people who that work is for who those adverts are for. Otherwise, what's the point if no one's watching? It does. And 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 this is, you know, both of you, even Theo, have kind of touched on this and said, well, but aren't they getting this the wrong way around? And the answer is, well, yeah, kind of, but also no, because you're forgetting the scale um, and you're forgetting the desire of people to become famous on YouTube. If one creator says, right, I've had enough, I'm picking my ball up and I'm going home because YouTube has not paid attention to me, which is a lot of creators and is a big issue and they should do better. But if you're YouTube, you have 20,000 people who are creating, you know, a new channel, whatever, who are willing to come up and replace them. You know, it's very annoying. <laughs> They've gotten that cocky with the turnaround. Well, yeah, but I mean, they, you know, it's the world's biggest video sharing platform. It's, it has an almost endless sort of churn of people who are willing to come on and new stars are still being minted every single day and you know you see this with on a different sort of level twitch and you know ninja moving away from twitch like twitch is still there <laughs> you know, mixer where where he went is is not doing that well like people appreciate the individuals yes but they want the brand more they exist after the fact, don't they? These, these platforms, they're, they're still going to be there. And I can see why that is. I mean, to sort of throw it over to the other side of the duopoly, do you think Facebook probably have the same kind of, I don't even want to call it arrogance, but it's just truth. Do you think they have the same sort of feeling? Because I, I feel like there's different levels to this in the sense that I see Facebook releasing a lot of features a lot of the time for users and and naturally that's because of time spent, whereas uh, YouTube, I suppose, not so much maybe because it doesn't have to. Yeah, I mean... uh... The, the interesting th- story about my book is that when I started writing it, I thought that Facebook video might actually be a competitor to YouTube. And then they launched Facebook Watch and, you know, that flopped. And suddenly this thing called TikTok appeared. So, you know, I mean, Facebook is an interesting one because obviously they are nowhere near in the game when it comes to online video. Other stuff, I yeah. think if they were going to do it, they would have done it by now. But why is that, Chris? Why do you think Facebook Watch was a flop when seemingly to, from an alien from that space it could be interchangeable in some ways because they did what youtube red and youtube premium or whatever they're calling it now did which is the same issue that traditional tv did which is 
they just thought that they could put basically people who are very talented at doing a certain type of thing into completely weird situations that were more like traditional TV and nobody watches it. Like, you know, the reason why YouTube Premium has failed is people don't come to YouTube to watch TV. They have TV for that. They have Netflix for that. They have Disney Plus for that. They have any number of different platforms for that. People come to YouTube because of the kind of anarchic, brilliant, kaleidoscopic, individual platform that it is. Do you think that was a rare moment of egg on their face slightly? Um, Not thinking that they're bigger than they are. But it, it's funny that, you know, YouTube music, all of these these sort of add-ons, I can, I suppose you could say, came at a similar time even, you know, where it just thought, oh, well, we're, we're Facebook, we're YouTube, you know, we can, you know, sell this and people will buy it. I, I don't think that the arrogance of tech bros is ever a rare occurrence. They, they misstep endlessly and the only reason that they survive is because they are too big to fail. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I say it all the time, I really think platforms should just stop copying each other's features and stop trying to compete in every space and just stay in their lane and do like what people like like coming to them for do that just really really well yeah why does linkedin need video why does youtube need stories we actually quite like linkedin video but i agree with youtube stories <laughs> YouTube, yeah youtube stories that's that's an interesting one i mean i'm trying to think of the other more it recent doesn't need it just, it doesn't and people will te- will show that in due course by not using it but continuing to use youtube for you know, the the original thing. I mean, YouTube's doing their own TikTok thing now, which is bizarre as well. I don't, I, yeah, I don't get it. But also you see that in the kind of difference between YouTube and traditional TV. So, yeah, we all thought that YouTube would actually just supplant TV. You know, they were at two different ends of the scale, one at one end being very particular, one at the other end being particular as well. But what's actually happened is TV has borrowed a lot from YouTube and YouTube has borrowed a lot in terms of production and scale and quality from TV. So they're kind of meeting in the middle now. Yeah, I mean, with some of these, I, I it's hard to tell some sometimes if the platforms are just copying each other or if they're updating their own services to meet what people now expect. Oh, they're definitely copying each other. I mean, like, Instagram copied Snapchat, everybody else copied Instagram. That's But with things like production quality, is that not just a given? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's the maturity of a platform, um, which is, you know, this is becoming a business. Like, you know, why does your business exist? Well, it's because a bunch of people realise that actually this is an important thing to get business support for. And so uh, they built it. You know, it, it's kind of the weird, like, wild west early days of hollywood you know you had people running around in production studios in 1910 who were putting up the sets acting in front of the camera directing producing and also kind of scripting these things and they were producing you know 12 films a month or whatever it is now you have 15,000 people working on a project that costs a quarter of a billion dollars Everybody has their own strictly delineated jobs. The market has matured. Where we are at with social media and with YouTube is we're kind of in like a 1915 stage where you know, you've got big enterprises that are starting to introduce the kind of like Model T Ford production style onto something that has never had it before. I was just about, yeah, I was just about to say, it'd be, it'd be very, very interesting to have this conversation again in a year and see what's yeah, changed over those uh, 
past 12 months but in 10 years i want to know what's going on exactly yeah but definitely chris oh we've had a you know a really really insightful conversation probably the longest i've ever talked about uh youtube but you know plenty of interesting insights there definitely thank you very much and hopefully we can have this conversation in a year's time and see where we're at and uh you know discuss some of the topics that came up yeah thank you for coming on i think that was fascinating super thanks for having me thank you for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode if you did please remember to leave us a review on itunes because it really really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week this has been the social minds podcast with myself theo watts eve young and produced by ollie thompson 